12 monkeys over here. 12 monkeys over there. 12 grunkies over here. 12 grunkies over there. 12 million grunkles pouring in from the future. Into Jesus. My eyeballs. That but doesn't is actually. Is it actually the future? Whoa, wait. Whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Did you hear it's that? It's actually the future. No, did And you, here we are. Did evolving you just hear on somebody? The podcast. I've come from the year 2032 oh. to, to, re- to record a podcast with you. Uh, oh, it's Bruce Willis. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh. We got Bruce Willis? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I was about I'm to here. make such an off-color joke, but... No, I won't because Bruce Willis was just diagnosed with dementia. That's just Are you so, serious? it's heartbreaking. Yeah, you didn't see that? That his like uh, aphasia diagnosis got upgraded. Oh, no. I guess I that. forgot. Yeah. We start yeah. this Grunkle podcast with breaking sad news. Breaking sad news. Wait, you're Bruce Willis from the future, though. Right, exactly. In advanced stages of dementia. Absolutely. I forgot that I had Which is what that movie kind of, you know. You forgot you were Bruce Willis. Uh, Yeah, you know what? There's only one guarantee, and it's that you're going to see my ass before the end of this. Because uh, in every movie Bruce Willis is in, you got to see his ass. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Is it like the Tom Cruise running thing? (laughs) Yeah. Bruce Willis is bald has bald, has bald ass, but um, yeah. that was a quite a vibrant introduction for yeah. our guest Casey. Uh, Casey, a friend of mine from the nether regions of my past, and uh, yeah, we're very excited to be adding guests to the Grunkle. The family format. gets bigger. Yeah, I'm very. People are marrying in. Yeah. We've got in laws. In laws. Yeah. Steps, steps, and in laws are coming in. Um, you got anything to plug or anything you want to say about yourself or introduction? Um, Favorite movies, maybe even my OnlyFans page. (laughs) I I, I don't know if I have an OnlyFans, maybe in the future, but uh, there's not a whole lot I want to plug. I don't do a whole lot. Um, yeah, nothing. What about what are some of your favorite movies? Yeah, my favorite movie. Uh, I really like things that are bad. I uh, mm. Sharknado was my favorite movie for a long time. Nice, nice. Um, I really enjoy Scott Pilgrim versus the World. I think oh. that one's a classic. Yeah, for sure. Um, shoot, yeah. I you know this is going to be a, a very layman's perspective coming into this. So, um, if some of my if some of my opinions are base, uh, please feel free to correct hey, me. Hey, none of your opinions will be base, but they will be based. They will not be based. That's base boosted. The Grunkle Pod. He'll be base Maybe. boosted. Base boosted. So. Put your headphones and on. Here we are. Your skull. Base boosting ourselves through three more movies, as we are prone to do here on the Grunkle Pod. We had, we had a, we had a smattering of reality bending flicks. Yeah, for sure. This my, time around, my grunky brain hurt. Yeah, Mine definitely. Too. Definitely a brain, a brain ouchy, thinky dinky kind of week. Where we watched Terry Gilliam's Twelve Monkeys, Abbas Kiarostami's Certified Copy, and Victor Eriche's The Spirit of the Beehive. Is this the first time we've talked Kiarostami since we've started the podcast? Um, didn't we do Frames? Wasn't that on? The oh podcast? yeah, 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 yeah. I always yeah, forget that. I never think of that as like one of a his movie? movies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a, movie, a movie. Period. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about um. Before we started the podcast, we were sort of 
talking about with Casey how you know some of the movies that we pick are like you know maybe a little niche or not everyone's gonna watch every movie <laughs> 24 frames is definitely one of those movies that yeah. I don't think everyone's running to watch I, I, I really don't think unless you are a film student you have a reason to watch that movie <laughs> yeah sure yeah you don't want to watch a uh, horses lick snow for 20 minutes and then birds hop around in snow for 20 minutes no I really don't oh man well, particularly, how are we uh, introducing these movies? Who's going when? And you know what's what? going how? I'll go first, and I'll talk to you, lovely people, about the film Twelve Monkeys. Twelve monkeys over here. Twelve, 12 monkeys, monkeys over over there. Yes, Twelve Monkeys, made famous by Eric Andre. Um, it also has an all star cast. Yeah, the film does have an all-star cast with Bruce Willis and Brad Pitt in the um, two leading male roles. Anyone got any sad news about Brad Pitt? Oh my gosh. (laughs) That he exists? Got him. Um, And uh, Madeline Stowe as the other lead. Um, We are dealing with Terry Gilliam's adaptation of La Jetée, a 1960s black and white sci-fi short film that really as far as i know was one of the first major entries is in terms of like time travel and cinema am i am i am i safe in saying that grunkle i would imagine that there's um some of those like you know wacky silent sci-fis that had some time travel Mm. Well, here in Grunkle's podcast, we we speak absolutely until we're proven wrong. Um, but uh, yeah, so the the story of Twelve Monkeys, an adaptation of La Jetée, it regards um, James Cole, a inmate from the year twenty thirty five. Um, James and every other living human being have been forced underground after a multitude of mutating viruses have taken over the surface of the earth and animals are now king again. Um, James is selected to volunteer for observation duty as he is sent to the surface to um, look for signs of life to test if the virus is still as ever present as it was when the global catastrophe began 40 years prior. James is then eventually selected by his authoritative overlords to be sent on a very special mission back in time to the year 1996, the year the virus broke out. And um, he is instructed to do just what he has been doing, collect observations and report back. But James is sent back not to 1999 or 1996, but to 1990, where he walks the streets of what city is it? Baltimore. Baltimore. Yeah. Um, Baltimore. Walks the streets of Baltimore, telling everyone around him that five billion people will die in six years time and that he is from the future. If only. He is is swiftly put into a mental institution. Um, And then, yeah, the the majority of the film regards um, James as kind of being pulled back and forth from the past and the future as this kind of time travel technology allows them to kind of reel the line in on him and pull him back into the future. Um, 
And yeah, he's like trying to establish his identity in both timelines and discover the truth of this situation. Um, for most of the film, people think that the army of the 12 monkeys are responsible for um, causing this global outbreak. But that really isn't the case. It What actually happens is that James Cole coming to the past and telling everybody, or most specifically his psychiatrist, about the army of the 12 monkeys almost creates this self-fulfilling prophecy where um, he's like leaving red herrings for himself to find in a way. It's uh, it's very twisted in that regard. Um, eventually it is um, discovered that it is not, um, it has nothing to do with the 12 monkeys, the army of the 12 monkeys at all. It is, the assistant of a Nobel Prize winning virologist who is disgruntled and with an, with apocalyptic dreams. Oh, and maybe the key thing that I really forgot to mention here is this dream that James yeah. Cole keeps having throughout the movie, where he keeps having this dream that he realizes is a memory of when he was a child before he went before the surface of watching a man gunned down in an airport. And he can't see this man's face, but he can't see this woman's face. And it looks like his psychiatrist. And and as the movie progresses, he finds himself um, in the same situation at the climax, the end of the film. And, and it turns out that he is the man that he watched die. Like him as an adult, having come from the future into the past, is the man that he as a child saw shot at the airport. And oh my goodness, that, that bit from the La, La Jetée, that... That comes from La Jete, but that is just such a juicy plot point. The loop, the fruit the loop. loop. Yeah, it really completes the circle. Casey, have, have, are you familiar with or have you seen uh, La Jete? Uh, no, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> nice. There's this nice. Um, like early 60s experimental movie. Uh, it's uh, still photographs in a sequence with uh, narration. And it's uh what the this movie was based on it's it's pretty much the the, the, the plot is essentially plot. the same yeah yeah just no gotcha. monkeys no monkeys no virus it's yeah, just a yeah, dude yeah going yeah. to the past and he falls in love yeah. with this woman yeah. in the airport and um <clears throat> and uh have you seen any other uh terry gillum movies no i actually have no idea who terry gillum is You've seen Monty Python Holy Grail, at least, yeah? I have, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. He's, he was a member of the Monty Python who um, directed their movies, and then when they disbanded, he went off on his own um, movie-making journey. Um, at one point, he was even slated to do the first Harry Potter movie. Oh, which right. Really would have, oh, really oh would have, my God. Really would have changed oh that franchise. <laughs> and, like, yeah. I think he's such a perfect director for a Harry Potter movie. yeah. But, you know, that that Terry Gillum's Harry Potter will be out in the ether with Bob Fosse's Andy Kaufman King's right, comedy, right. you know, like great movies we'll never see. What's interesting about Gillum is, I don't know, he's so he like loves time and history and like folk stories and like uh, Arthurian legends and myths and it's but then he also like loves making these like dystopian nightmares like this yeah, in brazil and he like really likes these like 
really frantic, frenetic characters who are yeah, just kind yeah. of in an environment that is almost like mechanical and pulling them around and stuff that like you as an individual have no control over the world around you in his movies. Yeah, and always constantly being oppressed or or mm-hmm. um oppressed restrained by yeah. you know this hideous <laughs> industrial hellscape. Um, and yeah, his world building and his like style is immediately recognizable and very in your face. That fisheye lens he uses in every yeah. shot, you know, like that it it really makes like the ceilings look so much taller and stuff, and makes it like when there's a close up, it makes everybody look bug eyed. You know? Yeah. What was your experience like with his um his ex- like I don't know maximalism, Casey. Uh, if like you if you've i've like i imagine if you've only seen holy grail uh before this because so many of his other movies are like just like this in terms of Mm -hmm. style yeah i mean you know i I, if you would have told me beforehand that this guy also made holy grail i i wouldn't have been able to guess like these movies just feel so different uh specifically like how light-hearted holy grail is and how anxiety inducing 12 months is yeah Anxiety-inducing oh. is, is, yeah, apt. Um, yeah, like, I, I truly did not care for this movie just because 90% of it, I was just, like, on edge waiting for, like, that one more thing to go wrong, you know? Mm, I was mm. I was almost relieved when, when the red herring about uh, him strangling his psychiatrist uh, was on the news. They, you know, there was a little bit, like, a small fake out with that and i was like oh finally okay we don't have to worry about her anymore she's gone she's dead (laughs) (laughs) um but psych uh she was not dead and it's just oh okay now i get to worry about that more do you find yourself not enjoying movies if they make you uncomfortable um i find myself enjoying them more after the fact like you know in in a week i'll probably say that 12 monkeys was a really good movie but but as I watched it, it certainly was not. Mm. Um, See, I think I think in terms of like um, a rewatch, or at least you know, like having seen La Jetée, like almost knowing that it's coming, like quells that anxiety for me. It does, it does, and and I really have enjoyed watching uh, rewatching movies because of that. Like, mm. I think my ne- if I watch Twelve Monkeys again, I will enjoy the movie a lot more. Right, but only because I know the ending. Right. And also stories like this are always fun to watch again because, you know, in in a heady time loop uh, sort of narrative, which we'll also talk about uh, in our next movie, sort of, um, you, there's so much that uh, you gain as a viewer by already knowing where the story is going. And so you can like pick up on these like small details that loop right. back that you wouldn't have necessarily picked up on the first time this was my first time watching this movie mm. i've been meaning to watch it for a long time i for some i think i mentioned this on the last po- podcast i in my head i would always get it confused with seven psychopaths for some reason <laughs> also have not seen numbers um, and titles two words yeah but like t- terry gillum i don't know he just um no matter what he's making of the things that i've seen even when i'm not all that engaged he just makes really entertaining pieces of of he makes entertaining movies like he just throws so much at you that yeah i don't know it's always fun to go for the ride with him 
Um, yeah, he he's really quite unrelenting. As well. Yeah, it just never like he he starts and it never stops. Like yeah, Brazil, you know, it's like if you miss that first little detail, mm-hmm. right? It's just like important small details that the entire plot, you know, becomes based around. Yeah, based around. It's just like yeah. immediately thrown at you. Yeah, and I can definitely relate to the the anxiety perspective when watching this movie because of how unrelenting it is, because yeah. of like how yeah. how nonstop all the plot is. And I don't there is just something about this movie too that's just so so tragically poetic, you know, and I think that mm-hmm. a lot of that tragedy comes from the fact that that you know bruce willis's character really doesn't have a chance to reflect on anything and by the end of the movie like he is starting to believe these things that his psychiatrist is telling him that no you aren't from the future all of that is in your head you know what i mean like this is the real world and the irony of that is like he starts saying that to her in the moments that she is finally starting to believe him yeah and he's like constantly just um being pulled in and out of uh, different realities and different times and um, being shot and being stabbed. And he's just like being slowly mentally and physically withered away until, Mm. you know, he is this man that he keeps witnessing in his dream and he has to watch himself die. And he never, he never uh, gets to experience freedom because before he's time traveling, he's a prisoner in this like horrible industrial, um, like city of rusty cells and this yeah. like you know uh very very matrix-esque and yeah for sure for sure the dystopian future yeah big oh, time yeah. gillum definitely had a lot of influence on those wachowskis yes yeah it that that's definitely plain as day which i've never really thought about but as soon as you say it you know it's like <laughs> it's like Dah! really obvious yeah um i don't know maybe i have but yeah and it's uh what do you guys think of uh, Bruce and um, Brad Pitt performances? Casey, you want to you <sighs> take the lead the, here? Yeah, yeah, I can, I can hit it. I thought the the Bruce performance was incredible. You know, he he had me kind of by the balls the whole movie. I was always so nervous about what James Cole would do next. the The Brad Pitt performance I thought was strong, but not as strong as Bruce's. It's you know, it's he. I don't know. I, I guess I don't really have experience with with uh, institutionalized people, uh, so I don't have that perspective of like what that sort of uh, mental illness and whatever was going on, what that should look like. So uh, I just kind of yeah, had to. Yeah, I definitely it. think he was doing more of a shtick than a. Yeah, yeah it's like a caricature of a. Right. You know, it, it was it was almost a divergent person. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But I think it matches like what Gillum's doing with the camera and uh with his like filmmaking and i bruce is definitely a little more grounded uh i think the character definitely calls for it more because we get more our emotional attachment is with bruce um but i i had a lot of fun watching brad pitt in this movie for better or worse and it's like the same thing with the movie for me and like with gillum it's like even when i don't like it i'm still I don't know. Having fun with it. Um, I think the best choice... And I felt that way with Brad. I think the the best choice Brad Pitt made in this movie was putting that thing in his eye. Oh, yeah. 
he, he would like something in his eyelid or like had his eye taped up or something yeah. and it just gave him this like permanent crazy look but yeah i don't know i i agree that he was doing like very much a shtick and a character and like while it works for the movie it doesn't work a lot of times and i don't think it's like for sure that, you know notable of a performance but definitely brad pitt's breakout year with him doing this in seven like months oh, wow. apart yeah yeah for sure, sure was what really kind of got him on the map for Fight Club. You know, like I was saying, you know, like, it, I feel like a lot of the time, you know, you do a movie that lands you the next movie kind of thing. Whereas I feel like this and Seven definitely got him his part in Fight Club, where I think he, like, really kind of... Um, that was the explosion. Yeah, like, that's, like, where he's, like, really got a handle on a similar character who kind of, like, has that same mania, but, like, the way he restrains it in that movie is much more powerful yeah hmm. um, actually sorry my bad we're not supposed to talk about fight club <laughs> i think your audio just peaked with whatever goober noises you were just making <laughs> i put the mic in my mouth mouth you did I, I, I oh i got real close i got oh, real, no. real close yeah i don't think the listeners are gonna be able to hear that it's just gonna sound like muffled chaos yeah <laughs> um what do you think about Bruce Elliott? Oh, I thought he was fantastic. It's yeah. sort of force, you know, like he's, yeah, he's, I don't know. It's a character. Where is this in like, Bruce's career? This is like kind of in the middle, I would say, you know, like I feel like Die Hard is really why we oh, know yeah, for sure. Bruce Willis. And, you know, oh, this yeah. is kind of like post the fame of that um, yeah. before Sixth Sense too. So he wasn't like quite like. Yeah, this is like before Sixth Sense, before Pulp Fiction. Or no, it was right after Pulp Fiction. So I don't know. This might be kind of like height of his career. Maybe. I don't know. He's just, he's really such a fantastic actor. He's kind of like an Al Pacino archetype actor. Oh, yeah, for sure. Where he like plays more or less the same character in every movie. But there's like one key difference between all these different characters. And that singular difference is like the crux of his performance. And, because... and in the 2000s, they've both done some terrible movies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there you go. There you go. It, it all lines up. Yeah. Dunk a Chino. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's not Al anymore. It's Dunk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. Mr. Gronk, what did you think? My roommate sorry, I... will not stop quoting Dunk a Chino. I'm sorry. Oh, really? Put that in there. Yeah, all the time. I'm so I'm, sorry I'm, to trigger I'm you. Sitting, like I'm sitting that. on the t- I'm sitting on the couch watching Australian Survivor. He comes in, he's like, "Hey, you got a Dunkachino?" Dunkachino. <laughs> uh, what I think about Bruce? What? Yeah. What did you think about the movie? I feel like we haven't heard your thoughts hardly at all. Oh, um, uh, yeah. No, I think um, certainly entertained and um, engaged narratively. Just because that plot keeps chugging, I I'm not yeah. walking away from this movie. I don't know, like I didn't get much of an emotional response to it. It is crushing the story, but I feel like Gillum's style is a little too, a little too frenetic and a little too mm. grabbing my head and shoving it places for me to have emotional responses to his movies. At least emotional responses in terms of like the strong emotions that he's going for in terms of i don't know just like i'm not uh i'm engaged my entertainment wheels are spinning but my i don't know what what you would call 
Like I'm not getting much, much more than that. I'm not I, getting I much. Like, I feel like out of Gillum's movies, though, this is like the most emotionally charged of all of them, or at least this is the one where I feel like I can put myself in the character's shoes the most. You know, like where there's, yeah, I I do think that there are parts where like, like you said, like his freneticism and kind of like prevents the piece from really feeling grounded. And like the fact that he's like taking your head and shoving it in somewhere like can prevent sometimes your own ability to notice things. Yeah, I just, sorry. I think that like within the frenzy, he just like will hide like so many little things, so many little lines, like so many little callbacks that really make this movie shine for me. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely enjoy it. I just feel like, I don't know. I feel like there's not too much. It's no time bandits. No, definitely not. Um, <laughs> like, I feel like there's not much, I don't know, subtext or substance yeah. beneath mm. the flair for me, which, you know, yeah. the flair does a lot of the heavy lifting and the, the stories are great. I just don't I don't get the I'm not I'm not full after eating this meal, but I'm satisfied with what I ate. Yeah, I feel you. I feel you. I I definitely I'm like, oh, that was a good sugary treat. Tasty. Tasty Mm. is all heck. But yeah, but where I want lasagna. Yeah, Yeah. I I feel that like with a story like this, though, like it's almost like at a certain point you're biting off more than you can chew. You know what I mean? And that it's, it's so hard for a story that really is this heady to kind of like also be so relatable and emotional and i think that he does i don't know the best that he can i don't know i guess yeah I'll just, yeah i'll be over here soapboxing for this movie no you, well you guys I mean, rip it apart right no, no. <laughs> i'm just um, joking i'm joking I, I'm... I do think this movie was a little bit too convoluted for me like i wanted mm-hmm. to learn more about any of these one things that were going on Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but they were just they were going at such a breakneck pace that I feel like you know I never had time to like digest any of yeah the yeah 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 me. which which I mean stress aside it was annoying you know I wanted to know a little more about the 2030s that yeah. uh, Bruce is coming from mm-hmm. yeah for sure I get that too and yeah he doesn't uh, it's just like scene to scene line right. to line like there's yeah there's not much. Uh, there's not much sitting in the sauce. Yeah. Watching, I watched this film in the middle of the other two, and I feel like it was such a jarring experience compared to the other two. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a, yeah, that's like definitely. a, because the, the other two films really like soak in the, uh, yeah. in the time it takes for each scene. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and, and 12 Monkeys just does. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And it's funny that yeah. this is, uh, happens to be with those other two. Um, yeah. Terry Gilliam's like, oh, I hope you were paying attention. Time for the next scene. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other two are like, all right, so we're doing this thing. Have you noticed it? Yeah. Have you noticed it yet? Well, how about now? Well, now something else is happening. Have you noticed Mm -hmm. that? (laughs) Very different. Yeah. Yeah. Should we go on to the next one? Yeah. Let's boogie oogie woogie. What's the order again? Kurosami next. We're doing certified copy yeah oh yeah. my goodness gracious what a damn movie i was we were recently we were recently talking about favorite movies right mm-hmm. yep i don't know this this could be it for me honestly really this is a top yeah. tenor you think this is your the oh, easy. the creme of the kurosami but yeah i think so Kyle, you think so yeah yeah oh wow um but yeah certified copy 
uh, came out in 2010. It is one of his uh, non-Iranian films, non-Farsi language films. It's mostly in English, uh, but there's a lot of French and Italian in there as well. Uh, maybe not even mostly English. Maybe it's there's. I, w- I would love to see the uh, the ratio there, the the split. Um, yeah, I'm gonna butt in real quick to say that I feel like watching this movie in different languages would be funny. Like if you're watching it in French, just like the moments the subtitles come in and out from like, right. when you're watching it in English, you know, like yeah, just for that sure. being different in every language. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that's fun. Or watching it in Chinese and everything is subtitled. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, but yeah, uh, it's it's um, it's a it's it's your walk and talk. It's your before sunrise. It's your before sunset. It's your uh, taste of cherry. It's your getting a car and almost real time, but not real time. But there's a there's something going on here that is subverting that uh the naturalism uh big time it is stars juliette binoche uh and william schimmel who was an opera singer this is the first acting role that he did at least really? in front of a camera yeah no way yeah he's an opera singer wow that is <laughs> yeah. insane i think he's phenomenal in this movie yeah, yeah what a like, performance yeah so, uh, both of them are like two of the best performances i've seen i think um oh, and then he but, went on to do amour by michael haneke oh yeah that's right wow oh. um yeah william schimmel what a legend well i mean uh, i guess he has he's a performer he's still a performer you know what i mean but that's still yeah yeah it's still a performer sure. amazing wow yeah um juliette binoche plays um the owner of a antique store and she is um, living in Italy. She has been for the past five years and an author is coming to the town that she lives in to give a talk. Uh, She is an only mother, her son, uh, Julien, is that his name? I believe Mm -hmm. Um, he's a little brat, a little McDonald's brat. No, he's fine. He's cool. Um, And she is, He's a bit yeah, of a shitter. Cool. No, I like him. I like him. No, he he's like you get my cheeseburger. Well, he makes some Honestly, good points though. It uh, continue. I'm sorry. I, yeah, I, no, I, yeah, I, we'll I, get I, into I, it. I, I got something to say about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, although everybody in this movie is equally likable and unlikable. Um, I think for me at least, at times, uh, some more than others for sure on the unlikable side um but we're getting wide spectrums on every little character um at least our primary two which is really this is a this is just the two of them juliet binoche and william schimmel for the most part but he uh he mr opera plays um an author that's giving a talk on his book certified copy in a in the town that juliet binoche lives in and the the book is um piece of art criticism i guess of uh going or art theory going into um the dichotomy and the relationship between um originals and copies and the viewers or the audience members or the consumers whatever it is perception of copies and what makes an original an original and what is an original is the original the woman that's posing for the portrait is the original the first portrait that is painted of her 
is can a copy of that portrait be considered an original if it becomes you know part of an artistic canon is the original the first iteration that you experience regardless right. of its sequence and chronology yeah. right yeah and it the movie also of course all gets into this of and that's the, the name of the movie is the name of the book um yeah. but they start hanging out after the the um, the event and because she has invited him uh to hang out and check out his shop uh the son is saying that it's because she has a crush on this man and she's saying no you know i'm just you know owner of this antique store and you know i've got all these uh originals and these copies and whatever and it pertains to his book so they meet up um to spend the day together and over the course of them walking and driving and um, getting to know each other very awkwardly and immediately, very frankly, it is slowly morphing um, their relationship from strangers to long time, 15 years married couple. And the line between them being strangers and then ending up in the hotel room that they stayed in on their wedding night is so delicate and subtle and um there is no one moment where it changes over but uh their dialogue increasingly becomes more and more um familiar and there's a moment when they're in the coffee shop in a coffee shop around halfway through the movie. Um, mm -hmm. And he tells a story about him seeing her and her son years ago when he was writing the book and he doesn't know it was her and her son. And then he steps out for a phone call and this woman at the cafe assumes it's she, uh, he is her, her husband. And she starts like what we think is role playing with, you know, just for herself talking as if he is her husband and then slowly after that coffee shop scene is when it really starts turning over into them being um a storied couple yeah. um and it's so in unbelievably masterfully subtly done for me at least um and there's constantly all these other couples in the film that they meet and interact with and newlyweds and couples as copies and couples as copies of each other in different um parts of their life and like this old couple at the church uh that they run into um and uh, a single couple as copies of one another but like inverses and it's it just it, it really gets into like um <laughs> the essence of originals and copies and art and in the relationship uh, uh both between like artists and viewers and uh two people in a relationship and intertwining all of that it's wild i love it yeah for me like for so much of this movie especially in the second half i'm kind of even questioning like like if it's a bit almost that if like these two people just like based on this previous conversation they had just kind of like had or just seem seamlessly falling into like 
I don't know, just playing out this like kind of twisted relationship fantasy. Because I've like read reviews on this movie on Letterboxd where people are just so adamantly trying to like figure out the truth of this movie and like what happened like are they actually married are they actually strangers is she actually his mistress that he had this kid with from you know all those years ago but every single one of those interpretations to me is kind of getting farther away to what the core of this movie is yeah which is which is that these relationships in life are I don't know that they are never monolithic that your relationship with someone is never static. It's never one thing and it can change as you move from place to place. And I loved what you said earlier about that. This film is all about like subverting the naturalism. And I think that so much of this film is trying to convince you that this is a real situation, but actually Kiristami is like, operating in this kind of like emotional human sandbox that's just been rearranged to look like real life uh it's it's really a haunting it's it's like twisted almost you know what i mean it's almost like kind of deeply fucked up but it's (laughs) like so it's so like tame on the surface it's so placid yeah what was your this was a rewatch for both elliot and i Um, and really? I'm sure we'll get into how it is on a rewatch. Uh, but how was it for you for the first time? Um, it made me want to rewatch it, you know? <laughs> yeah, because, yeah, yeah. Because frankly, the movie lies to you in the first half of it. It, Mm-mm. you know, they, but does they it see very... like and that's what I think the question is. Like, I agree. is no, like, absolutely. yeah. Sorry, not to cut you but, off. But... No, you're fine. the The plot that I subscribe to is that. Um, shit, you kind of threw me in a tailspin there uh, when you were talking about how it's kind of that sandbox, but. The the plot until you said that the plot that I kind of subscribed to was that either the son has no idea, you know, he's never met uh, his dad in person. Uh, I I think there are some hard truths about the movie, like these two at one time had a child, um, and as it you know as it progresses further through the movie, and the more the plot kind of doubles back on itself and corrects itself almost, you know. Because it's not two strangers meeting. These people have been married for 15 years or have been. Um, the, whew, yeah, it, I don't know. This was a very emotional movie and I don't even remember where I was going with it. But um, I think it just sort of had a lot to say about relationships in general and just sort of the forgetfulness and the fluid nature of relationships. Yeah, for I'm, sure. Uh, I'm kind of, it just, I hated how relatable it was because this felt like a movie about a failing marriage. And I'm, kind of in the middle of a, of a pretty tough breakup right now and it felt like uh it, it was revealing to me kind of yeah like, that's that's quite this you know that's quite the headspace and time in your life to watch this movie yeah, my, yeah, my it's wild my perspective right now is like so into the uh these these two people that it all started to kind of make sense because you know i've, I've had this awkwardness talking to to christy and you know we we have officially broken up but we we have talk to each other since then and it just gets so awkward and it's so reminiscent of that uh that drawn out car drive scene and oh my god it like that was it was horrible like i had to i had to come back to the movie uh put it down and come back to it just because it was so long-winded it was so just about nothing kind of and it, yeah. it felt so much like they were strangers but in the context that they're actually married you know it's they're not strangers right and what's wild for me is that like 
from the start, even when they're trying to be cordial, every single interaction they have, they contradict one another. And it's like, she wants to meet in the antique shop. He wants to go for a walk. Um, She thinks her sister is simple and basic and annoying. He thinks it's genuine and charming and this and that. Uh, He thinks his joke is funny. She doesn't. Um, And it's like, even before they're this, like, marriage and disillusion even when they're strangers mm-hmm. it's um it's contentious um yeah yeah and and the, the hostility grows in their conversation as yeah progresses. and you kind of like realize like hey what's there's something that is not adding up here yeah for sure and it's like <laughs> when you're watching this for the first time it's like um you don't even like there's there's no like a less delicate hand would have like a concrete revealing turnover moment or like plot point or plot yeah. device. And he just doesn't do that at all. There's no yeah. handhold. No he just messes it the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. But and I it's... think the only reality in this movie is what's happening in the scene. I agree. I agree. I don't think there's any overarching reality. I think the only reality, it's a scene by scene thing. So everything yeah. is true. Right. And I also think that the movie is working very consciously to try to, like, put these moments in order, you know, that, like, this happened after this happened after right. this, and to make it yeah. seem like... Well, because their all... physical journey is so yeah. concrete, right? It's so yeah. grounded, the right? And the idea that, like, it all would have happened in one day, in, like, one afternoon. But then part of me also thinks that this is just, like, so many moments throughout time, throughout right. the the entire spanning of this couple's relationship that is kind of being plucked and like plucked out of time and space and put into this movie because this movie isn't isn't a real depiction of these relationships this movie isn't is itself a copy of human interaction constructed for viewing pleasure right and it's and it's it's very literally physically point A to point B, but in between that, everything happens. Everything yeah. that could ever have happened and hap- will happen happens. Yeah. And it's like I think that this infinite is infinite between points. This is maybe like the best movie you could possibly make with two people. You know what I mean? Like, I know, if, it's insane. like if you literally just have a European town and two people, like I just I can't imagine a better product. Yeah, and it's like huge. It's vast, and it's but it's like so small. And yeah, and they, yeah, it's really wild that that because you you watch out every step. I mean, they're they're cuts, they're ellipses, very briefly, just to move the plot along, um, so that it's not totally Gene Dealman on you. But um, um, you see every part of their journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and you never leave them. Yeah, uh, and sometimes they're, know. sometimes they're directly looking at you, into the camera, and they're both unbelievably fucking stellar performances for me. And they're sexy. They're both really. Yeah, sexy. they're both so attractive. Oh my god. Oh my god. And I there so there are times when I'm annoyed with Juliette Binoche. There are times that I'm like totally with her and like she is my um muse no or she is you know my sympathetic character she is like the one that i am relating to and emoting with the most and then there are times i guess 
I don't know. I at the end of the day, the the man, the James Schimmel character, is definitely the bigger. I don't know though. They're they're both the bigger what bigger douchebag. Well, they're yeah, definitely the bigger douchebag. Well, I think it's what to believe though. You know, it's yeah. I think that they're both just so desperately trying to fight for their individual happiness, and they both have no idea what that entails. And like there is there is this um the line towards the end that she had. It's like if we if we could just learn to stomach each other's weaknesses, we wouldn't be so alone. Right. And that's what it's really about too, is that it's like, there is no perfect person for you in the world. Right. And yeah, at the end of the day, it's a myth to sell Valentine's day cards. Two people that shouldn't be together. (laughs) Well, but who even knows like who, who should be together out of people in this world? You know what I mean? And it's also about like, who's good for you in a, in a, in a, in a point of time. And if you're good for the other person. And I think that, we just get our our own personal lives mixed up with other people's personal lives so easily yeah, yeah, and yeah. it just becomes such a such a tender thing and this movie movie really highlights that and like while like verbally they're always going at each other like there's like a really clear need from both of them to be right and when she goes to like she, like there when she goes to put on like her lipstick lipstick and the earrings in the restaurant um, they've already been like arguing for a while and angry, but she's that's like clearly her still wanting to putting in effort um, yeah. and like wanting to have it work and wanting for there to be spark and for there to be love. Um, and then Sorry it just ends <laughs> with the open window in that hotel room. Yeah. Well, where they they both have their like he has his mirror moment yeah. and he's saying that he has to leave by 9 and the clock strikes 8 times and and then like it just brings you back to the real world again, you know what I mean? Like right. you, like you like wonder if it's uh it's like oh, we're back here again. Like we're out of the land of this relationship. I don't know, just in terms of movies that like explore the impact of relationships like this, like this is Pretty it's creme de la creme, I must say. It's a pretty, yeah. pretty damn good movie. Um, yeah. And also, like, Juliette Binochet, between, like, um, this, Cachet, and Three Colors Blue, like... Oh, one of the greatest. She's, like, a top five. Yeah, one of the best of ever. Time. Yeah, like, seriously, brilliant film actress. Yeah. Oh, it really, really could gush about this movie. movie I want to gush about this movie. Yeah, well, yeah, what are, what are some of your, your final thoughts, Case? Uh, final thoughts. Uh, this there's a really good chance this turns into one of my favorite movies uh, after I watch again. But I have to watch it again because it's yeah. just so. There's so many inconsistencies about it, but there's so many consistencies about it, and it mm. it pulls you in a bunch of different directions at once. Intentional inconsistency. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they're so deliberate, and like <clears throat> I I made a note that I kind of hate child characters um, because they either know too much or they don't know anything. And there isn't really a balance. I feel like people don't write children very well, generally. Because, mm. um, like, you know, when I was 7 or 12 or however old uh, this this guy is, you know, I, I didn't, I had no sense of romantic relationships and the nuance of it. But, you know, the the son is, is uh, what did you say his name was? His uh, Julian. Name, but Julian. in the, in the, um, 
in the credits, it's really interesting that her name is L, which is just French for oh, right. she or her. Right. And now. then he's James Miller, and everybody else is just the whatever they are. So his name in the credits is just the son, which oh, I think wow. is interesting that they yeah. name him. I mean, I feel like it'd be hard to talk about him if he wasn't named within yeah. the film. <laughs> but that outside of the film, he's only referred to as the, the son. Right. Right. Yeah. Just sort of hitting home the universality of like yeah. all these characters. Yeah, and like, I don't know. It was it was too much for me at times, but I love this movie. When you said I, uh, intentionally inconsistent, it reminds me uh, <laughs> early in the film he's like uh, intentionally aimless. I like that or something like that. Mm-hmm. Then, okay, but I'm I'm ready to move on. Other than that, I just this if there was a film out of these three that I would recommend to everybody, it's this one. Nice. Yeah, me too. I mean, heard, it, is... heard it from Casey, resident layman. I'm happy that you loved it. Yeah, because <clears throat> yeah, this is this is up there for me. Shall I introduce the third one? Yeah, yes, please. please. Oh my god! All right. So the third movie I watched was *The Spirit of the Beehive*. Um, I know the other two watched it in a different order, but uh, this was this is our third movie for the week. Uh, it is a 1973 Spanish drama directed by Victor. Uh, Eriche is how you pronounce it, I think. Yeah, that's how I went for it earlier. Here we just we just kind of go for it, knowing we're probably wrong. Yeah, well, it's I mean... funny that you say Binoche. <laughs> Binoche is it Binoche? I don't know. Binoche. Binoche. Like a I always kind of Michiganize it a little bit. Binoche is like sounds like a pastry to me, bro. Well, it's French, I mean... of course it does. <laughs> <laughs> um. <clears throat> But uh, Spirit of the Beehive is a movie about two little girls. Um, the Wikipedia says it's their uh, Anna is six. <clears throat> she is a shy and curious little girl who contemplates death a lot. Um, surprisingly, actually, uh, for, for a six-year-old to be having these kind of thoughts. But it is uh, Spirit of the Beehive is a movie that is a majority silent. Um, when they do talk, it's, it's very few words. Uh, and and this is a film that like really really made me feel stupid watching it because uh, there's so many scenes that just feel pointless at the surface and I couldn't tell you if they have meaning uh, they probably do but I went through this movie and it, it was kind of like I was waiting for something to happen and then nothing ever did um, and then you know about halfway through the movie um, you have a, a fake out scene with with Isabella the sister um, pretending to die. And, and giving Anna a scare. Um, and then uh, pretty pretty immediately following that, a, a homeless man comes into the picture and jumps off a train and, and shacks up in, a, uh, in an abandoned house uh, nearby where these two girls live. <clears throat> now, I feel like I've done a terrible job explaining this because I completely forgot the, uh, the whole reason it's called Spirit of the Beehive. Um, they, they talk about in the beginning of the movie how uh, they they watch the movie Frankenstein and they talk about how there is a spirit that lives in this uh, in this abandoned house uh, with this well and uh, when this homeless man appears Anna I think takes it as sort of a physical manifestation of uh, the spirit you know she she thinks that uh, this is the spirit but it is just a homeless guy uh, he feed she feeds him uh, she clothes him with some stuff on uh, goods from her father who is a pretty unattentive father um, and then he gets fucking lit up 
immediately after and dies. Yeah, see, uh, I'm was he supposed to be a hobo or like an anti-Franco like partisan fighter? Yeah, I think that it has something to do with the the. I think that he was like you know like a, a soldier that's in the wrong place and the war's over. You're basically a hobo at that point. Right. Yeah. Um, like you know, I I really there's just so much in this movie. I I don't recommend it if you're not a film student because I really didn't fucking get it. Mm. Well, I think um, a lot of understanding this is knowing like. Francoist Spain and like uh yeah the the civil war and the fascist takeover yeah. and, right. and it's it, interesting I, mentioning like how it's like it's difficult to kind of like crack through the surface and like I definitely don't think I you know got to the the bottom of the lake but maybe just through the ice and that like a movie like this is so like cloaked with its imagery and heavy yes. and its symbolism to kind of like maneuver its way around censors while still having an anti-establishment take right because franco is still in yeah. power when this movie comes out he's like yeah. the last fascist dictator in western europe his his reign goes well into the 70s um Shit. Uh, after taking over and i think you know in the 30s when when a lot of the other uh a lot of a lot of uh, Europe was being taken over by fascists. Um, and for me, I like the the main symbol symbolism that, like, I don't know if the dad is supposed to be analog for fascist dictator, but certainly like the beekeeping is, I think, supposed to be. You know, like, uh, yeah, like uh, how he talks about like how he despises to... their authority and their structure and their the willingness of the drones to risk their lives and die for the right. queen to work mindlessly right, right but then right. like so much of like the action of the movie was disconnected from those ideas it felt right yeah well it's like i it's kind of like a trite and reductive i think to say but um this movie's kind of really just like you know it's a it's a vibe you know <laughs> it is a vibe <laughs> in, a, in a way that i've liked a lot have you either of you guys read frankenstein or seen the 31 movie frankenstein frankenstein Frankenstein. I, uh, <clears throat> I read it in high school, but that was it. Um, I feel like I haven't seen the specific movie you refer to, nor have I read it proper, but it's just one of those. Yeah, you know it. Yeah, you just know it. Yeah, but I wonder yeah. like how much trans literary kind of stuff is happening here. Oh, sure. Outside of um, her literally having this encounter with... Um, Frankenstein by the lake, yeah. who manifests himself mm -hmm. in her, whatever her her unconscious, yeah. And like she is, she is constantly running away from home, and running away mm -hmm. from family, um, and just trying to live in her own sort of fantasy. Um, yeah, and she's constantly being called back and right. not allowed to or denied. Um, and I, when, think and it, it, I also feel like her sister maybe is like an analog for like fascism almost yeah, like yeah. as like yeah. intense of like uh as like you know to i don't know put her in that role that she is really you know kind of this person who's feeding her little sister false information who's right. goading her who's mm -hmm. you know like looking out for her more or less but is still kind of like going through the world for her own personal enjoyment right. for her own you know seeking of power and it's just this really interesting choice for me that anna has at the end of this movie that she is like 
she's like so split between realities that she just makes the conscious choice to shut one of them out entirely. Right. Yeah. And I wonder how much she is analog for artists in Spain that are being yeah. denied the ability to um, make uh, the art that they want to, that is anti-establishment, that is anti-fascist. Um, yeah. And obviously with fascism comes extreme censorship. Um which I think was able to skirt it with this because of how drenched it is in symbolism and the fascist bozos that watch it to, you know, the censorship board isn't necessarily going to always pick up on everything that is. Yeah. yeah. For me, even when I'm dealing with symbolism, a lot of time, if it's not connecting with me, I just find it to be, you know, beautiful enough to like. Kind yeah. Of and this like, movie is it certainly delivers yeah. On, yeah. on that. So the landscapes. Casey, I guess like what what was kind of like going through your head watching this movie? Were you just like the whole time like what the fuck is going on, or were you you like um, able to let that go at a certain point and just kind of soak in it a little more? Well, I I kind of learned to by around the second half, just because like I think I still had some residual anxiety from Twelve Monkeys. Ah, yep. Um, so like I you know I was like I I still had that stress of like oh the sister has died, she is gone. Oh yeah, no, that, yeah um it's like okay where do we go where do we go now you know because it it was just so i i spent the first half of the moving movie waiting for something to happen and nothing did you know even even the deception of her faking her death like you know it was it was a prank it wasn't real and it's it's one of those things where you know i went into this movie blind and i shouldn't have i should have read the symbolism read the historical context and then it would have made a lot more sense to me but Watching this movie as a movie, impossible. Yeah, Elliot and I like to talk about uh, what we bring to movies uh, already with us in our little viewer toolkits and like how our enjoyment or or uh, analysis of a movie is entirely based on <laughs> what we've seen before it, what we've done and lived before it, what we've yeah, what we know, what we don't know. Uh, right and and none of us none of the three of us lived through the this uh you know the release of this movie and right. the context that surrounds it right. so yeah yeah so a lot of times you know you kind of have to you have to right you have to mine for yourself in terms of right. like exactly. what the information is and the but best then, art shines through that kind of stuff yeah i agree too. yeah i agree too but like, there are movies like this where like you can still like be like really engaged by it even though like um you don't have all the context, you know, so, uh, I feel like right. a good comparison is something like Bo Travai, you know, both in its kind of openness and, you yeah. know, similar length that seems to exceed that in terms of its, um, in terms of its depth. And yeah, for sure. A movie that has, yeah, like a lot of historical context that bolsters the movie, but I don't think the movie is entirely inaccessible. Right. That. There's, a, I don't, yeah, I don't think there's necessarily prerequisites that, right. you know, I'm like uh, Marvel Infinity War. You gotta watch like 30 movies before you right. see that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I, this movie felt extremely inaccessible to me. Yeah, uh, and and I hate that it did. And I wish I could just call it a good movie and move on. But I just, you know, I I think I agree with you that the best art shines through all of the symbolism and can still be taken as an independent piece of art. This cannot. Mm, you disagree? Yeah. Well, I, I agree and disagree, yeah. you know, I, I could never like hit that point of engaging with the movie. 
because it all right. so much of it felt so random and so just like <laughs> a la like dazed and confused you know where like they were just showing things mm. were you at any point like uh wow that's beautiful looking yeah i mean there were points in in the, the film especially the the wide landscape shots where i was like hey you know I, I wish that there was more of this so that I could appreciate just sort of the scenery and the surrounding, but it's so uh, tightly focused on either the house, the school, or the cottage, the abandoned mm. house, that mm -hmm. it was it was difficult for me to sort of put everything into perspective. Yeah, yeah. Oh, another thing I will add about this movie, though, is that I think that the movie's lack of context is mirroring the children's lack of context, too. Because, like, if these things are going around in their world, it's, like, a question of, like, you know, like, how aware are they? And you said that thing before about, like, how, you know, that it's so tough to write children because they either seem like they know too much or nothing at all. I thought that these two kids were very well-written and very, like, oh, believable. Yeah. Yeah. And their stage presence, their 100%. screen presence was, like, yeah. powerful for me. Like, they um, also a lot of times... Uh, not only child actors, uh, child characters are mishandled, but like child actors, you know, they might be yeah. trying their best, but sometimes it's like, okay, you yeah. know, you're mm -hmm. a kid, you don't really, you're not really selling me on a dramatic performance, but the kids in this, right. are, it's, I, yeah, the, the acting I, itself was, I there was great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Everything's so very like muted and understated and right, like void of things to really grab on to but yes like in a meditative way in a way in a way that you know you kind of have to release yourself with it and i don't know that's like i think what i meant when i was when i described this movie as a vibe which I it is a vibe by, you know it's like it, it, you know it is sort of almost not not quite slow cinema but almost I yeah certainly it, style over substance but still enough substance style as substance at the yeah. end yeah. this this is just you know I want to rewatch all of these movies but this one especially just like now that I know a little more about the context right I I want to sort of understand what the the Spanish people were going through yeah and, yeah, I, love, and I oh sorry sorry I love how uh, like folkloric it feels I'm I'm a big fan Very of so. like uh, fairy tales and folklores and like. Mm -hmm literal folk too and like these like it's all like they sort of live on this villa um but perhaps another little analog for fascism but the rest of the town is this very small town in these rolling fields and hills um yeah and everything is sort of um other than some like very vivid beautiful greens everything is this like um these dull grays and browns yeah blending into each other and these like beautiful landscapes um, mm -hmm. and these like mm -hmm. people these these townsfolk that are there's like this communal sort of nature to the town and this they have this own little movie house um right that is their little source of i don't know their little source of magic and like how how imprinted this young girl is by the movies you know feels you know tickles a little something in me of course yeah mm, he's been Ooh. tickled <laughs> yeah um, no, this is definitely a director i want to explore more of his films yeah. now and this is a movie i've been wanting to watch since like high school i think yeah i think that it. this is this is definitely one of those big like kind of art house movies and yeah. it, you know i don't know i think that um 
it, it definitely, like Casey said, is not the most accessible movie in terms right. of yeah. of how how vacuous it can be at times. And so because it kind of does wear that that art house label, you know, I I, th- I think it's well earned for better or worse. Yeah. Um, and there a, another big move, reason I wanted to watch this movie is because there's this band I love that takes their name from this movie. Oh yeah, I love Spirit of the Beehive. Spirit of the Beehive. That's the name of the band. Oh. Yeah, they make, I had no idea. They make really weird music. Our buddy Sean Lang put me onto them, Casey. Ooh. Well, I uh, I may have to give them a listen, but yeah, I may need some context first. They're weirdos. They're weirdos. They're <laughs> weird sounds. Just that's your context. Weird sounds. Uh, weird okay. movie. Weird sounds. This movie, really, to me, I just kept coming back to like these two other pieces of art slash artists. I don't know if they're like related at all whatsoever, but this movie gave me. Big picnic at Hanging Rock vibes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of its like focus on like our presence in the nature and kind of like the anti conflict of yeah. it all. And that movie feels folkloric too. Definitely, absolutely, absolutely folkloric. And um, the the Spanish playwright and poet Federico Garcia Lorca, who was um, assassinated a few years before this movie came out, who was really um invested in the political struggles and you know using art as a political device while you know masking it in um in poetry and he was uh, assassinated by the uh, i don't know if it was quite franco yet or maybe it was i don't know fascist ass spain killing him for being a gay man making art saying things about the government humbug humbug i say let's not have that be happening yeah let's 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 bring him back to life a la frankenstein uh, but like i want to watch this movie on like a rainy sunday morning you know spirit of the beehive yeah yeah definitely. like i don't know this movie is like it's got big fugue state vibes for sure. yeah yeah mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm i'm a little bit sick um yeah. I just popped an edible. It's Sunday morning and it's raining. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. my yeah. mental faculties are not aligned. Let's watch yeah. Spirit of the Beehive. <laughs> hey, I mean that's how I watched it. You know, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. You got the you got the grunk experience. Dealing yeah. with the high blood pressure from Twelve Monkeys. So, yeah, I mean the only thing I'm missing is the rain. But other than that, you know, incapac. I watched it from my bed. I was incapacitated. It's you, you ate know, an edible. I did not eat an edible, but it was a vibe. It was a vibe. It's a vibe. It's always a vibe on Grunkle's moving on. Oh, it's a vibe on Grunkle. What are we watching next week? Next week? Oh my gosh. I don't want this week to ever end. How about that? <laughs> um, again, big thanks to you, Casey, for coming out and joining us. It was yeah, a, lot of of, a lot of fun to have you. Yeah, yeah um, first guest appearance. Success. Yeah, first that guest. was awesome. You will always be the first guest of Grunkle's yeah. It's good to hear. I have my legacy out. now. Yeah, but next week we are charging away, slamming back some more movies. We are watching Peter Greenway's The Cook, The Thief, his life, his wife, and his lover. I thought this was a Giallo film based on the title, Greenway. but but it's it's not. It's a green Greenway film, not a yeah. not a yellow film. Um, <laughs> Uh, what is this? Is it like a murder mystery kind of movie? I don't know anything about this. Well, Grunk will tell oh, us wow. next week. Um, we'll be watching. I think you're um, gonna like this movie from what yeah. I know about it. I think you're uh, gonna like it a lot. Well, we love to hear it. I'm gonna love the cook, the thief, the wife, and his lover. 
Um, then we'll be watching a movie by Grunkle's all-time favorite director, Steven Spielberg. Um, a movie I've never seen, believe it or not, Jaws, folks. <laughs> of course, the pretentious assholes making a movie podcast about films that you can only find on the Criterion channel haven't seen Jaws. Hey, I've but, seen Jaws. You can okay. watch it on Delta Flights. Just me. Jaws? For free? Yeah. Yep, that's how I watched it, actually. Nice. There you go. Booking myself yeah. a plane as we speak. Come out to Boston. <laughs> um, You know what? We'll see. We'll see. I'll come out to Boston just to watch Jaws. Do it um and the final installment of next week's episode will be andre tarkovsky's bioepic andre rublev which will put barry linden to shame as far as my uncle tells me i've never said that i love both those movies that's a good movie it's a good movie barry linden yeah it's fantastic but here we are talking about movies to talk about other movies and we're about my favorite director Steven Spielberg and my least favorite director Andrei Tarkovsky. Yes, correct, correct. No, no, no! Don't get it twisted. <laughs> Don't get it twisted. All right, Casey, do you want to have the last word on this podcast? Yeah, get your plugs in. Come on, Twitter, Instagram. Um... <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Reddit, uh, Tumblr, um, uh, oh, Deviant Art, um... OnlyFans. Follow I... my TikTok account. Uh, it's at Orges. Yes, follow Casey's TikTok to watch his progress with his ice baths. Are you still yes. doing that? I am, yeah. I haven't done it today yet, but I probably will. Get in that bath. What sparked that for you? Um, I saw the clip from uh, the Joe Rogan podcast on TikTok, and it was talking about how like it's super easy to, you know, just like get all these crazy health benefits from it. Um. So I was looking it up and I saw that, you know, you can buy an ice barrel for $1,200. And I was like, well, you know, Home Depot sells 100 gallons <laughs> for, for $70. And then that's just kind of been the end of it. I wanted to see like how how rooted in fact this was, you know. Mm. I didn't want to just dismiss it as as uh, gobbledygook before, uh, before trying it out myself. Fair enough. Yeah, no health benefits so far, but, you know, it does help with anxiety. So whenever think- I'm... Whenever I think I'm if you're a professional athlete, you'd probably feel the the health benefits a little more. But oh, definitely. I mean, as a recovery tool, it it certainly is is helpful. Mm. But uh, you got to yeah, I don't know. It's there's a lot of like weird nuance to it. So closest I've been is the Russian bathhouse, where you go in the sauna for five minutes and then you go into the freezing ice water bath immediately after the sauna, and you just keep oh, yeah. going back and forth. It's crazy. 